Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans' transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. To solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast, and on today's episode, we have somebody I'm very excited to have on the show. He has had a really fascinating career in the uh, United States Coast Guard, as you can see by his hoodie. If you're watching this episode, he has played in a lot of really fascinating places in the government in terms of cybersecurity and is still, to this day, bringing cyber cybersecurity infrastructure to customers in a, multiple different roles. And finally, he went through the very first breakline cohort. If you are a transitioning military member who haven't heard about breakline, you'll hear about them now. We've had a couple of episodes from pretty early on cohort members to include Gabe Skanga, which I highly recommend you go check out those episodes. But he was the first ever breakline cohort. So with me today is Sean Planky. Sean, thanks so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy that my we fault. Can... I apologize. Ah, but you know, I you see you bumped me back. I think twice. So then I felt like I needed to at least cancel on you once to so that everything would be all evensies and now. So it's all good, man. We're happy we got it worked out. Yes, for sure. So you brought up an interesting point right before we started recording. Who do you think has a cooler bookshelf, you or me? Well, mine's starting to get a little messy, as you can see. Jeez. Mm -hmm. oh, uh, I was looking at your stuff. See, you went to reverse in me. You mm -hmm. put the nerd stuff on the top shelf. I put the nerd stuff on the bottom shelf. My nerd stuff yeah. down here. Yeah. yeah, I got to let people know that I'm semi-smart, but I've got, I would say half of it is like, is cybersecurity stuff. And then the other half of it is mountaineering and exercise books. So I've got, oh, I'd like oh, to yeah. believe I've got a good Come mix. on, come on. You got, where's the Academy classics? I know like good to great. They probably, that was probably an issued Academy book. <laughs> Shockingly, no, no. My copy of a uh, Once an Eagle is on the, is on the bottom shelf actually. So yeah, <laughs> my, it's uh, mine right there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's naval ship yep. handling. Naval ship uh, handling. I love that. Good old yeah, book. But see, naval ship handling is such a cooler book title than whatever the Air Force Academy would have made. I don't know, like the like yeah, basics of aerodynamics. Like, like aerial combat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not everyone gets to do aerial yeah. combat. You yeah. have to go to like, follow on training for that, that. That book was so great, and then I became a supply officer. <laughs> hey, listen, it's whatever, whatever floats your boat, man. But thank you so much for coming on today. I'm super excited to talk to you. So let's start at the beginning. As the first Coast Guard representative ever on this show, let's start at the beginning of your Coast Guard career. Tell everyone about that. As I alluded to a second ago, I went to the Academy, um, class 2003, odd years, baby. 
But I went there. I didn't know much like the rest of America. I had no idea what the Coast Guard did. I got recruited to play football there, which at 17, everything. And so when they told me that somebody wanted me to play football and it was free to go to school there, I said, great. That means I don't have to listen to my parents. I didn't realize that then meant you had to listen to everyone else in the world. Uh, so, yeah. So I went to the academy and promptly almost got kicked out immediately for, for failing out because I was totally unprepared and, and made it through, made it through, played all four years football, wrestled two of the years, got in a lot of trouble, top 99%. So, yep. Think about that. That means, um, six from the bottom uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, basically coming out of there, since I knew I was on the bottom, the quarterback and I were dead heat for, for those bottom slots. And so we were choosing, you choose your billets and put it in and all that, your, your selections. And we said, man, everybody's taking all the great sl- spots and we know we're at the bottom. Why don't we go somewhere terrible together? So, so we picked, we looked and we're like Northern Michigan <laughs> And we went to a World War II icebreaker or World War II minesweeper turned icebreaker. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. The ship, I mean, it's sick. It turned like, 60 while we were on board. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So where was the icebreaker operate? Like on the Great Lake? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So people don't realize, but like uh, 60% of the heating oil for the East Coast um, actually comes down through the Great Lakes. And so you got to, you know, in the winter, you have to, keep the ice broken up and make sure those those ships can get through. And then in the summer, there's all sorts of buoys and aids to navigation that, you know, that you had to handle. Um, so I did, that was my first tour, a lot of driving the ship, man, really close to, you know, show water and, and learning how to do naval ship handling. Uh, and, and so back then everyone had to go to ships, right? So now if you go to the Academy, you can come out and go right to flight school or go right to other jobs in the service. But back then, the rule was everyone had to go to a ship. Um, yeah, so I did that. Then I went up to Alaska, went on another ship. At Alaska. I'm a polar bear by heart. This is We're about to hit my favorite season, winter, coming up here. And so went north to Alaska. That was It's great. That's the wild frontier. It's an amazing spot to be at. Great some people might think it's a great place to raise kids and stuff. I tend to think it's a great place to be single and in your 20s and that you can live the adventure. We went all the way out the Aleutian chain. We took the ship to Hawaii and back. Um, I was listening to one of your other, one of your other, the Navy guys talking and we, people always struggle. Like, why do we even have a Coast Guard? And I always just like to remind them because even the Navy needs heroes. So, so. The, the, the Navy guy was talking. He was just your last podcast. And I was talking about like, oh, I did all these deployments. And we, you know, every year in the Coast Guard, if you're on a ship, you're underway for six months out of the year, every year. So you're gone six months. You're, I'm on, on a ship for two years in Alaska. I was gone six months home, gone six months again. That's the, that's the way it is. We call that going to work. The Navy calls that deployment. We're like, that's just what you do. So... So yeah, spent got a lot of sea time in my first four years. Did the traditional boarding officer. So like in Alaska, fisheries is a multi-billion dollar industry in Alaska. So you go out, board the vessels, make sure they're not catching things illegally, uh, making sure this is really a problem right now, actually. Uh, Chinese and Russian vessels are coming up and coming into U.S. economic waters, U.S. EEZ. 
and, and harvesting our fish. And they do not care. They just rape the ocean floor. Whereas we have like economic allowances and we count the fish and all that sort of stuff. So we would cite them, push them out, patrol to keep them away and did that. And then that led to me going to grad school. And that was really like the launch point for what became, that was fun and exciting and I loved it, but that became for what launched me into the rest of my life and, and how we get to today. I went to grad school, a guy with a terrible GPA like myself, of course, I thought applying to an Ivy League grad school was a great idea. Of course. <laughs> yeah. You just have so much confidence in yourself. Yeah. Uh, I literally, I was in Alaska and I was like, hey, I, I want to go to the East Coast. My, I'm an East Coast guy. These are my people. And I need to get to a city. So I applied to Pitt, Maryland, and Penn. Maryland loves, Maryland loves military members. Do a great job. They always take care of military members. Penn, Penn, Ivy League school, on the other hand. Not Penn State, got to remind everybody, just like the Coast Guard is not the National Guard. And and they told me, pound sand. <laughs> they, were, they were like, oh, your grades suck. No. Uh, but I had a buddy I grew up with who was a missions officer at another college. And he's like, dude, it's not some secret like candlelight admissions committee. He's like, go find whoever runs your program and bother them until they let you in. And <laughs> So I did, like I sent in my fit rep and I was like, yo, here's all the things I did. I'm not a normal 23 year old, 24 year old, whatever. I had a different life. Come on, let me in, blah, 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 blah. Literally he sends me an email after six weeks of doing this where he goes, due to your persistence, I've decided to reverse the decision and let you in. <laughs> and so that's how I went to Penn, computer science. I ended up meeting my wife there. But crazy time, I started playing rugby for Wharton. And this is something that I, I will tell. I, I think this is actually a, a pretty important uh, military transition thing. A lot of times when the military pays for you to go to grad school, I've seen guys go, oh, I'm going to go to down by the sea university because it's so cool. I can go surf every day and go to class. Or it's in my hometown. It'll be great. I can go live where I grew up and, and hang out there. And they decide to go to schools that really have no, like, they're probably, they could be majoring in something and it's not even like a primary major at that school. Or like, I've even seen guys do, oh, I'm going to do this program because I can do it completely online and never move. And I'm like, you're missing the point of grad school. The point of grad school is to actually build a network and to build the people that you will associate with for the rest of your professional career. And so when you do an online program, I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. You're going to learn if it's an online MBA. Great. You're going to learn how to use Excel, but you're not going to build the network that you will need to get those jobs and move on because everybody in the job field has the base knowledge of Excel, but they don't necessarily Oh, I know that VP. I know that SVP. I know that EVP. I'm applying to this job because somebody hooked me up to apply, told me I should apply for it and, and have that network. Like the world is built on human connections, not on your ability to do Excel spreadsheets. Hmm. So, and go ahead. Why did you, why did you choose, why did you choose cyber? So I did computer did you, science. I did computer science. Yeah. Computer science. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. How'd you write it? So I yeah. was always, 
despite being a football player and, and, a, and a general meathead, I was always into computers. Both my parents were computer programmers. So growing up, I had an IBM XT, an AT, a 286, a 386, like all the computers growing up. They were my parents' like work computers. And so so I had them as I was coming up. And I always was like, you know, trying to figure them out, break them, fix them, all that sort of stuff. And so I always liked it. But then I didn't obviously didn't do any of that stuff at the academy. It, it wasn't even an option then. And then came back full circle to it. But so to that point about where you go to school, it like go to a school that you can build a network at. Obviously, I think traditional Ivy League schools build great networks. But hey, if you want to live in Ohio, go to Ohio State for grad school. Think that through and be like, hey, I'm, I, I want to live in this part of my life. You want to live around Chicago? Go to University of Chicago. Go to Notre Dame. Go to the schools that have networks in the area. And that really, that's like your first major building block of how to get, you know, how to get somewhere. And so for me, I ended up playing, I, I went to Penn, but I did everything with Wharton, the business school. And, and actually it hits the first trajectory in my life in that when I was playing for Wharton, I actually took a head-to-head collision and fractured my skull right here and had a massive brain bleed. And it, this, the surgeon that did the surgery on Gabby Giffords actually did the surgery on me six months before Gabby Giffords. Yeah. And so this whole half of my head, um, I ended up getting MRSA in it. And I did a year with no skull whatsoever. And so, yes. So I had to wear a hard hat and I did this. And I, so I was on like limited duty at my, so this is five weeks before graduation. I smashed my head in. I still graduate. Then I get MRSA. I'm at Walter Reed after I PCS to my next unit. I'm at Walter Reed. They're like, dude, your head is, your skull is is disintegrating. You have MRSA, giant infection. So they go in, clean it all out. I did a year with no skull. And then they put a full titanium plate in this whole half of my head. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's crazy. And that year was the year I dated my wife and then we got married. <laughs> Wow, you must be an amazing guy to be able to, be able to keep her around through having your titanium skull put in like Wolverine. I was like, at least you know that there is a brain under there. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah, the irony of that is so I get that depending on your service, I, if that was the army, I probably would have been medboarded because a massive TBI with a, with a titanium plate. Med board, right? I didn't med board and, and they kept me in and then I deployed Afghanistan later on in my career, right? Like, yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting piece. People are always like, you got that in Afghanistan? I'm like, ah, I actually played rugby. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, so that all happens, come back, get assigned to NSA. And this is right, right when NSA, when Cybercom, I was actually at Cybercom, Cybercom was really starting to stand up. This is actually right before Gabe got there in your previous podcast. I, he, when I was leaving, he was coming. Um, and so I led, I get in there, one of a few random 21 Coast Guard people throughout all of Cybercom, 2,000 people. And I get to work, I get into this office, a fire shop, right? So everybody knows who fires are, right? Joint fires. And I get in there and I got this awesome Marine Colonel who's, 
a Jedi School of Advanced Warfighting. Um, Tim Grott is his name. Amazing dude. He's still float, floating around the DC area. And he's some stuff about computers. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm here to do stuff with too. And he's like, that's the type of people we want. So he, I end up being, um, being the, the weapons officer, essentially. So, you know, he's like, hey, I want these types of kinetic effects. And I'm like, okay, this is how we would do this in cyber. We, we essentially designed, like you would design in product design, you know, offensive cyber capabilities. And then we fought NSA to use them because NSA doesn't actually want anybody but NSA to do cyber. Some things haven't changed. And so, yeah. And so I did that, loved it. And the J3 was like, hey, I want you to be our, I want you to be my aide. And I was like, ah, that's cool. Um, General, I really respect you. Uh, Brett Williams, good, good Air Force general. I still keep in touch with him. But I was like, General, you got that 05 billet. I, I was in 04. You got that 05 billet going to Afghanistan. Nobody's filled it yet. I, I'd really like to do that. And he's, he looks at me and he goes, Coast Guard guy, you guys don't get that many of those chances. Sounds good. That's sweet. <laughs> Way to hook a brother up. Dude, this is the funny thing, though. I call the Coast Guard. I'm like, yo, I'm deploying. And they're like, I, ah, that's like a six-month workup for us. How do you? I, I was like, I'm leaving in six weeks. I'm like, just send me Navy Type 3s with my name on them. And thanks. And they were like, okay. And the Coast Guard was like, who is, where is this? Who is this guy? What? He's... <laughs> And I called the army up, like IA, individual augmentee, and that was out of Fort Bliss. And the army was like, yeah, how you Coast Guard? Cool. How many? And I was like, just me. And he said, just show up. Just, and I showed up and they just put me on the conveyor belt. And and yeah, went to Afghanistan. It, it was amazing. Amazing experience. We took offensive capability that was used in one way. I ended up hooking up with some SF dudes out on a, a village civility platform and with the ODA team. And the ODA team was like the ESOD there, which is like the EW and, and, and radios guy. He was like, wait a minute, you're doing this and we could do that. Let's do this together. And next thing I knew, I was going to all these soft units around Afghanistan, like bringing my capability, which was essentially backpackable and doing it with different units. And... That was like the first time that had happened. Um, ended up, uh, ended up launching my career. Uh, I come back from Afghanistan. I get recognized on the Truman balcony and mentioned in President Obama's speech to the nation on July fourth. I ended up like making a name for myself, really getting into cyber. Unfortunately, that also made me the unicorn in the Coast Guard, and they're like the detailers are like cyber. This is literally no, no kidding conversation. Cyber. How about the JWICS help desk supervisor? That's cyber. <laughs> and I was like, you're killing me. Like, that's, because it's JWICS. It's not cyber. <laughs> wow, what, a way to, what a way to stab somebody in the heart after they do soft work in Afghanistan. Yeah, totally like out there want to go get it and then come back and how about you be a base c4 it officer 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I ended up being uh, a flag aide for the Army's three equivalent, like a G3, and wrote a bunch of the basics of the doctrinal and procedural stuff for cyber for the Coast Guard that still exists today. And then I popped to the reserve. And that's when I went through break line. That's awesome. Yeah. And so why did you why did you decide to drop into the reserves? I had the my only options were they were like and th- this is what gets me today when we talk about like the services not meeting quotas and struggling to recruit people. I wanted to do operational stuff. Like I had skills and capabilities in cyber. I want to use them. I know how to apply them for the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard lacks imagination and can't see how to do that. And we've had this problem in cyber a lot where our senior leaders who are used to counterterrorism missions that are being approved by president and four-star SecDef presidential levels, they lack an imagination of saying, hey, how, what's a different way to get at this? And so, so they end up thinking cyber is a silver bullet, like it's like nuclear deterrence and they need approval at the highest levels when they, cyber is, you're not blowing up buildings with cyber. I'm sorry. It's just not what happens. And so the Coast Guard just, they couldn't get past themselves to think of what was possible. And so I was like, literally, I was with this three-star. He's a good friend of mine today, Vice Admiral Midget. And he looks at me and goes, Sean, I can pull some strings and sign you, get you a special billet at the Pentagon, or we send you back up to NSA. But you're going to come back in one or two years, and you're going to want to do cyber again, and the detailer is going to tell you to be the base C4 IT officer again. And I was like, that's a good point, Admiral. And I, I, the honest feedback was like, great. It was like, I got to go a different way. And so then once you knew that you were about to, that you were about to get bumped off onto a desk essentially and not do any of that stuff, how did you start preparing to drop? Yeah. A couple of key things here. One, I made the mistake of asking who's my network. All the people that are like retired Coast Guard that are like in my vicinity, right? Or they'd gotten out of the military, NSA, Cybercom, and they're back in it, and contractors up there. And so all these guys are like, dude, I can, you can get crazy. You, you could be a GS-13, a GS-14, or whatever. I'm like, if I want to be a GS-13, why, why wouldn't I just stay in? Like, A. B, they're like, oh, you can be a contractor. And so I, I actually started to do that contractor route. And I would encourage anybody thinking of getting out. Look at where you're going to live. So so if you're not going to just stay wherever you're getting out, take the BAH, take your pay, take COLA, any of the other allowances. Add it all in there. Okay? Add in what is that maximum um, amount of money. Figure out what that take-home pay is. So post-taxes, take-home pay. So remember, BAH isn't taxed. Come back the other way. And this is where those online Excel spreadsheet classes help out. <laughs> go back the other way and then say, okay, what if BAH was taxed? So what type of outside the military income level would I have to make that then would get me that same level of take-home pay? And then add in th- add in three to 500 bucks a month for healthcare. Add in, don't forget any money you were putting in your TSP versus a 401k, right? You have to start doing those ma- that math. And I found out that in the DC area, if you were in 04 back in 2016, you needed to make 
160, 161-ish to have the same level of take-home pay out of the military to have the same level of take-home pay that an 04 would have. Right? And so so that math, you figured out at the 06 level, it's like you need 02 to make about 205. And that, so then you start doing contract work or getting interviews and doing, and they're like, ah, oh, we'll bring you in 157, 158. And I'm like, I'm going to be making less. And all these guys that were telling me, you can make all this money. What they were really saying was, hey, I'm retired. So I'm making 157 plus my retirement check on top. And so you're really not making all that money. Your retirement check is adding to it. So you, I, you have to start thinking it in that regard and realize that your network is actually a very insular network. And they're just telling you what they know the world to be like. And if you want to be them, then sure, follow in those footsteps. And so I realized that after I realized that because going through Breakline and Breakline was like opening, just opened my mind of what the world of possibilities were. It really was a life changing experience. And Bethany, I still keep in touch with the founder. I told her it like it, it changed my life going there and understanding how to what's really out there, how to navigate the world. And so I still I thank her to this day for it. And I know it was game changing for Gabe, too. Yeah. All the folks who have gone through it, including myself, it it's definitely a, an amazing program. And for you, what was it like going through the first ever Breakline <laughs> cohort? So the first ever cohort, we went out there for a month and we lived in these like hacker houses, which like legitimately, I mean, building an inspection, if you want to crack down on something in this in the Silicon Valley area, that's what you need to crack down. You got like <laughs> 25, 30 dudes, people living in the same house that's a three bedroom, you know, built, <laughs> built, built for like six. Like, let's talk about water consumption and sewage and yeah. 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 Um, so, A, uh, that, that's, yeah. Why is, why is, you know, California's water problem really there, right? <laughs> but You've got 20 people to a house. Exactly. But B, the other thing that was hilarious is being in the first group, we go around the first day and you meet everybody, right? Like, oh, what service are you? Where are you from? And, you know, I'm kind of excited, like, oh, who are these people? And I quickly look at them and I'm like, ah, I've seen these people before. I've seen them in soft units in Afghanistan. So we go around and they're like, it's like this is like, uh, Delta SEALs, Delta SEALs, fighter pilot, Delta SEALs, fighter pilot. <laughs> and I'm like, Coast Guard? Coast Guard Cyber. <laughs> and everybody's like, ah, there's one, there's one. <laughs> um, and to make it even worse, um, so the newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, wants to do an article on the program, right? It, and they're like, they need somebody to interview. And all the, you know, Delta and SEALs are like, <laughs> like I can't show my face. Who are they looking for? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> and so they, they interview me, you know. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so, you know, in Afghanistan, I got a bronze star because of, you know, this stuff. And, um, <laughs> and so they put that in the article. And so I'm hanging out with the, with this, uh, um, Delta dude, and he's awesome guy. I love him. He's like, ah, look at that. You got Bronze Star. <laughs> Proud of you. Yeah. He's like, 
he goes, he goes, yeah. He's like, yeah, I have six silvers, three unacknowledged. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I knew it. I would be so embarrassed. Like, yeah. He's like, but thank you for your service. Yeah, you, yeah, you really, you really do like, an amazing job. <laughs> I'm like, but can, you, but can you type on a keyboard? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, so what do you, it was hilarious. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And so what would you say in that transition experience what was probably your what would you say is your biggest takeaway for other people that are preparing to do their transition outside of do the backwards math to figure out how much money you actually need to make yeah so figure out the backwards math of where you want to live and, and what's that going to be like then you can start to narrow in the industries because sometimes i feel like we have fictitious ideas of where, where like People like, oh, I want to live on the Outer Banks or like Wilmington, North Carolina, and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a life coach, and I think I'll make, I think I'll make two, I need to make two twenty five, and I'm like, like the average income in Wilmington, North Carolina is nowhere near two twenty five, and then if you're a life coach, dude, none of those things add up, right? So, so you really gotta sit back and assess that that starts to bring in the world of what's really possible, right? And if you don't know your career path, think about where you want to live and just look up what are the average salaries and that type of stuff in the area. And then you start to figure out what's realistic to get there. But then the other things I found is you really have to get outside of your normal network, right? If I wanted to be no, no colonel left behind, right? In the Pentagon, when you're in that environment and you're talking to those people, you're going to get those types of answers. So you have to get totally out of that environment and talk to people that don't do anything like that, that don't work in the military industrial complex, or you will end up back into it. So knowing what you want to do, that's pretty, that's useful. And then the other thing that I found very useful, and I learned this from a uh, little bit of military, but a little bit of my Wharton network. I'm looking at positions at a company. Let's just say you wanted to go to IBM, right? I'm just picking IBM. Look at, and you want to move up to the executive level. You're like, I want to be a leader there. I want to move. Look who's at that level now. If, 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 if there's no <laughs> middle-aged dad bod white dudes there, you're not going to be it. Like, but even this, say they're all 75 year old white dudes. Guess what? You're not going to be the first 42 year old white dude to break into that circle. That's going to be when, if you stay there, then when you're 75, you'll have a shot at that level. Like, you got to understand that the reflection of the ages and of what those people did in their backgrounds will then transpire. Like, you will not break the mold. I'm sorry. Like, the, it's it's rare to be the unicorn. I hope you are, but try to stack the deck in your favor. And so find a place where you can see that pathway. And then so what that so going from there and you're starting to identify companies you want to work at and you start there, work your way down like on LinkedIn and run it like an intelligence app. What did these people do? Where did they go to school? What can you find out about these people if you're moving to a new area? literally Google and be like, oh, they all live in this part of town. 
right? Like, I mean, provided it's not like New York City or something where it's a little bit harder. But if you can start to narrow those things down, you will find intersections that you're like, oh, they have three kids. I have three kids. Good. That's a relatable thing. So now if I go on the interview, I see that most of these people in these jobs have two to three kids or, or whatever, a number of kids. Sounds like it could be family friendly, right? Sounds like they're not going to be cranking me at 7 p.m. when everyone knows it's dinner time or soccer practice or whatever, right? Like those types of things you can find out by going through LinkedIn, looking at the people there, looking at those roles and essentially running it like an intelligence op to get some just basic information on what's the what's the the motives what's the character what's the what type of people work there and that becomes such a valuable tool during your interview process and then especially when you're trying to find other intersections like i'll go to a company if i'm trying to apply to it do i know anyone that knows anyone working at that company like they could be in a totally different field and it, it helps i worked at bp I worked cyber intelligence. I was a first level executive at BP doing that. I got that job because my quarterback on my football team who had gotten out, he was working on BP on oil rigs, right? And he was looking through the job board, internal job board. He sees this cyber intel job posted. And I'm like, dude, who's the hiring manager? So he puts the hiring manager, sends it to me. He sends the guy an email. I hit the guy on LinkedIn. I looked at his background. I'm like, hey, I heard you have this job. I'm, I'm interested in it. If you can make it available outside of BP, I'd love to apply. We start talking. He worked in the IC. I, he knew I was at the IC. We ended up knowing. We found a nexus. It was an executive position at a Fortune 10. Interview process ends up being six months long. But like, eventually we got there and I went to BP. And let me tell you, it's a phenomenal company. It was an amazing experience. I learned so much. There. That's amazing. And so was BP your first job out of past break line? No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I did this standard thing where I'm a veteran and you go to a job and you realize uh, it was terrible. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I went, I, you know, despite all of the stuff I had learned at break line, um, you know, us Coast Guard people sometimes need to figure it out first. <laughs> And, uh, and I took a GS 15 job at the Pentagon, ah, um, right back to where you started. Yeah. And I spent six months being surrounded by retired 06s who were like, Planky, you stick with me and we'll make you a 15. I'm like, dude, I'm already a 15 and I'm not an entry level 15 either. And I've stuck with you. And like, all we've done is talked about your career in the Navy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to do things. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was not what I was looking for. Uh, lots of job security. Didn't feel like I was getting the progress. And how did you, I think that because like you already alluded to, a lot of veterans run into this problem where they miss, I think a lot of people are told like the stuff on how to find the job and how to find the job that's for you and all that stuff. So how did you to do it? Yeah. How did you recalibrate for the second round 
to end up at BP in a job that you really enjoyed? What did you, what kind of soul searching did, were you able to do to refine your process for round two? So I looked for people that had been in government as, so, okay. I said, I looked for, at this point, you've narrowed down the types of jobs you're looking for, right? So you're not holistically saying the world and you're down in this little sphere. And so then I'd look at like companies and I'd be like, Hey, does anybody there, like, were they a veteran? Did they work in the government before at some point in their life, no matter how long or how far can I find these people? And I would cold hit them or find somebody that knew them and be like, Hey, do you have a moment? Can you tell me about your career? Uh, I'm interested in the company. I've looked at your career path. Uh, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, Do you have a minute to catch up? Can we do a video call or can I meet you somewhere and talk about it? And thankfully we all love to talk about ourselves. (laughs) So, so like, People are happy to do it and you find some of the most interesting things and you actually find mentors, right? Cause like people want to help that. That is, I find that is a uniquely American thing around the world. You can find other people that are like, Hey, come, come to dinner at my house. Come sit with us. We would love to have you as a guest. You don't necessarily find people that are career minded, right? In America, we're very occupationally driven and, but in that, we want to help other people be work, find work success as well. And so people were like, yeah, happy to talk to you about my career. And then that turns into, no, that sounded interesting to you. Let me hook you up with Joe, Bob, Betty, Sue, whoever. And you start having that second and third level conversation. And inevitably, it'll turn into an opportunity, maybe for a role, You've if you've read some of these stories like Freakonomics or whatever, it's that loose connection, right? So it's not your best friend that gets, that hires you, but it's like your best friend's high school friend or whatever. It's like that one, two away. And that is incredibly helpful. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that you just said that I really am interested in diving into with you is we're an occupationally driven culture in America. And I think that we double down on that occupationally driven culture after we get out of the military, just because we're the, our job in the military is so much more all consuming than I would even, I would argue a regular job in corporate America is for the most part, there's a couple of exceptions there, but for the most part, the military demands a lot more of you in your like personality and soul than your normal job. Also legally. Like there is something to be said that it gets in your head that literally the military owns you. Yes. (laughs) And so do you think that there should be any kind of decoupling of the concept of occupationally driven culture for people when they're getting out of the military? Or do you think that is a thing that is okay? So it is somewhat of an interesting uh, issue. I think that it's okay. And that's what drives people to change the world. That's what drives American exceptionalism. And, and I, 
not everybody believes in American exceptionalism. I believe in American exceptionalism. Like I want us to be the greatest nation on earth forever in history of all time. And no questions asked. And I want, and I think it takes work for us to get there and then continue to be there and continue to grow as a nation. Right. And so I encourage that not decoupling, but here's the problem. Right. And and I've run into it myself. Right. So I transition out of the military. I go to BP. I'm like, when you transition out of the military, and I can only speak my experience, but in a mid-grade to anywhere from 03 to 05, you are, you have an expertise. I was a good ship driver, and then I became a, a good cyber person, whatever you want to call it, right? You Air Force would call it warrior, cyber warfighter. So, so you like you have that skill and you want to and you want to hit sorry and you want to hit hit the ground running like you're like man I was just leading troops I was just doing this people come to me as the reference how do we do these things how do we figure this out I can crank this out online I could rip out awards I can rip out you know I can do anything that needs to be done you go in the private sector and you're like first couple of weeks, you get your training and all that sort of stuff. But then you start to see your, you know, your cohort, your like coworkers, colleagues, and they're, some of them are crushing it. And you like quickly identify, you're like, that person's got it. That person's got it. And you're still like, I don't know. And so you try to like rapid fire and crush through things. What happens is you're like on steroids, like the first about four, it starts hitting you like, Four to eight weeks in, you're like, I need to be doing something. Uh, Whatever your job is, I need to generate leads. I'm going to call 90 people today. Right? Like, um, or, or maybe you're an analyst or something. You're like, I'm going to crank this out. I'm going to do all this. And you're like spinning and you realize you're not like getting there because you don't have the expertise yet because you were hired for your capability to be something right? That's what you should be hired for. The employer knows it will take you a minute to establish that self-actualization, right? Maslow. And yet we want to be there already. We're like, I was a, I was an operator in the military. I was a warfighter. I was a ship driver. I was a fighter pilot. And now you're like, I like, so I was hitting it like four months in, we have this like company meeting for my like team. And I'm, I'm with my boss and we, we're like out, you know, I kind of pull him aside and we go out and I'm like, I'm just not getting this man. Like, like, am, am I doing okay? Cause also in the private sector, like, you know, in the military, it was like, Billy, yesterday you were dragging ass. You need to, you need to pick it up this week. And you're like, immediate feedback. Aye, aye boss. <laughs> exactly. In the private sector. You're like, am I doing okay? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> Somebody tell me if I'm doing good. <laughs> nobody's, t- nobody's. Everybody's. Like, they're like, dude, I'm working on my own stuff. I don't have time to talk to you. <laughs> and you're like, ah. <laughs> There's no like immediate feedback mechanism. And so like literally four or five months in, I'm like, tell my wife. I'm like, 
I don't know. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Like, how am I doing? Meanwhile, on the outside, I'm a first level executive at BP. All my like other friends are like, dude, Sean's killing it. He's figured it out. He cracked the code. And I'm like, dude, I, I don't know if they're going to fire me next week. <laughs> and, uh, and that's like, I had that, like some people call that like imposter syndrome or whatever. But I have a lot of buddies getting out right now. And I'm telling them one of them, he's working in sales and he's like, putting holes in his keyboard, sending emails and stuff. I'm like, dude, slow it down. Sending 10 emails a day to your connections is not going to make them buy your stuff more. Reel it in. And he came to me after two weeks. He's like, dude, my boss just said the same thing to me. He's like, slow it down. The sales will come. Just learn the system, learn the product, learn the company. And so we have that like feeling and, and it, it doesn't necessarily go away though, right? In this era of moving jobs, right? So after two years at BP, I went back in the government. Uh, I was on the National Security Council. And then I, I moved over and I was in SES at DOE. I uh, ran energy security for the country. But then I shifted back again to the private sector. And, and I don't necessarily think it, it like fully goes away. I, I've had some long talks with my wife and some others where... People are like, Sean, you just hit like home run after home run. And I'll tell you like this last time when I left the government, um, I, I was at a tech startup, um, you know, Silicon Valley AI company, you know, hot to trot, all that. Um, yes, the, 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 the Silicon Valley, uh, uh, you know, balloon did pop and, and it did for the company too. I was like, um, and I thought, you know, I was going to make it in a uh, pretty penny and ultimately I did not still working. And, but I was like, I thought I'm trying to build these things. And I, and you have that same almost reinvented question of like, why can't I hit that home run that I was hitting consistently in the military? And you forget, especially like you and I, we went through the Academy we had four years of minor league baseball preparing for the majors. Then we had your initial tours. Like we forget that in your first tour, like in my first tour, I was like, man, I think I suck at this. <laughs> Dude, terrible. Um, like all these enlisted guys hate me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and then, then you start hitting and you forget about those moments. You only remember like, the last three years you were in the service and you're like, dude, I killed it those years. It was amazing. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, it's crazy to, I really think that's one of the things that's so not talked about for veterans, which is just like that catastrophizing that you do in your head. I mean, I do it yeah. constant. I mean, I, I only have a year and like seven months of employment at Amazon yeah. and I've had to pull veterans i've had to i literally have veteran friends in the company that i love to talk to because i will constantly pull them aside and be like listen man <laughs> like i'm freaking out How right doing? now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and they're and it was really funny i remember flipping a shit early in my early in my time here and i went to this guy who's a naval academy grad and i was talking to him and i was like i just don't know i think i'm really sucking right now. I don't know what's happening. And he's like, Hey man, you're in an early in career program as a six year officer and everyone else in the programs just graduated college. Like 
you're doing great. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, it just, I can't, I was unable to have that perspective. Yeah. And so how do you think that people who are going through that can actually build that perspective for themselves? Yeah. So two, two things there at the AI company, I quickly found they were actually two Naval Academy dudes. Um, painful to say that I had to lean on them, but hurtful. <laughs> um, no, actually three Naval Academy guys, but, uh, but they thankfully mostly Marines. Huh. No. So it's better. I, yeah. We found ourselves in actually That's like the first thing that was useful to me is find a veteran who you can like ally with and be like, Hey man, this is what I'm seeing. Cause I know if I'm saying like, I could be like, yo, Billy, I think I totally just bombed this thing. I think it absolutely sucked. I'm curious, am I going to be here in, the, in two months? What the hell's going on? And you're going to be like, I, I don't think you bombed it. I saw this from this other perspective. And I talked to this guy and like, I think you're right. Or yeah, maybe you bombed this little part, but this is fixable. And like, you're not like destroying the company, right? Uh, um, and so, you know, that that's like useful item number one. The second one is I think you have to recognize that point because we talk about not to get like real dark, but you look at like things like veteran suicide and stuff and falling down that spiral of, of a dark place. Uh, and to me, that imposter syndrome and that thought that you're not hitting where you need to be and moving forward. I think that's like that first circle, the top of that spiral. And if you don't find a way to reinforce it, you will, you'll leave that job and you can't find the next job as fast as you want to. And then you start to question your worth and you're like going down and just based on like my experiences and where I've had my headspace at, I do think that's the start of that. And you need to have that flag of, if I need to find my swim buddy or my jump man or whatever you want to call it, um, to say, dude, did I screw that up? If yes, how do I improve? Because we do a great job of fixing things once we know we got to fix them. Or B, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You're just the new guy. Relax. You're the new guy. <laughs> like, you know, it sucks being the new guy, but you got to be the new guy. I think you've really hit on two things that I think a lot of veterans struggle with in the workplace, which is that we don't have the ability to understand what the severity of something is in the civilian workplace because we have no gauge. And so we just jump to some, yep. all, yeah, we catastrophize the crap out of whatever it is. And then on top of that, we don't like being the new person again because we were so used to being the shit yep. wherever we were in the military and having to reset that as an older adult is difficult, I think for everybody, but it's really hard in the military where you're like, I was that like national security rested upon my shoulders. And now you're telling me to chill in sales, which is true. Not, you're not good at sales, but that doesn't make it feel any better because yeah. I literally was defending the nation six months ago. And now someone's telling me to like chill because I can't make good sales decks for yeah. companies <laughs> and i would actually say like the the fourth backstop there is mm -hmm. in the military like at the end of the day five thousand people did it before you and there was a manual and you're like yeah. at least i can go back in the manual and it's yeah brother, you didn't do x y and z you're like do x y and z like, 
all right, got it, sucked, I'll fix it. Especially in startup land, there is no manual. Like, so I'm at a startup now and we're having a discussion on pricing. And the to me, the manual, I'm like, these are the manuals, right? Like any startup book that I've read, I'm like, ah, it's the closest thing I know. And yeah. half the startup books are a lot of times just some guy blowing his own horn, like, I figured it all out. And and so he so I'm like, hey, we're talking about pricing and our and the leaderships. I think we should do a freemium model, and that's my decision. And I'm like, but we haven't done smoke testing, we haven't done ABs, we haven't figured out like we survey. We have, we have no idea if that's a good product. That's not what the manuals say. And, and it, he's like, it's my startup. And, it's, and we struggle to be in that because we're like, the personnel manual says in chapter four. <laughs> that's very true. And so for you, something that you just touched on that I really, that I'm interested in diving into is the, that mental health aspect yeah. of starting that down, downward spiral. And so I want to dive into what that might have been like for you. And then I want to talk about ways that you would advise people to avoid hitting that those down those downward moments. But what was it like for you after being the shit? And in terms of the Coast Guard, like the post the dude, the cyber dude in Coast in the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard like the Bill Nye, the cyber guy of the Coast Guard. And then they essentially tell you, we don't appreciate your skill set. Yeah. We're going to put you at a, you're going to be a desk jockey. You're going to be client support. And then you're like, oh, I can't do that. You bounce. And then it's now you have to like figure it all kind of resets after that. So what was it like for you going from my whole time in life was Coast Guard. I was really good at being in the Coast Guard and now I'm not in the Coast Guard. I'm actually going to break that up because I think that there's two points to that for me. Um, like in the first part, when that happened, I, so I was like, I am going to be the best damn maritime cyber. Per like when people say maritime cyber, they're going to say my name, right? That was my mentality in the Coast Guard. Like when I was working up to, to the point of when you can be a cyber desk warrior and uh, you can be the help desk guy. And, and so that just made me actually angry. I was like, I'm going to change this organization, hell or high water. And so, so when I, I went to BP and BP is one of the world's largest private navies, right? They own more ships than almost anybody else. And, and they all carry energy, right? And so because of that, I was able to still keep a maritime cyber focus and BP holds a lot of lobbying firms in DC, right, uh, to support their initiatives. One of those initiatives is I made cybersecurity, right? So people were talking about cyber regulations and what should we do? And those are still conversations that happen today. And so I said, we should do some things in maritime. And so I wrote some legislation that ultimately became a law in the Coast Guard Authorization Act that said, hey, the Coast Guard tells pri the private sector and defends the private sector from terrorist attacks from nation states. The whole point of having a military service is to keep sovereignty of your nation. I said, they damn sure should be telling the private sector the critical infrastructure if there's this nation state cyber attack too. 
it's still their responsibility. And so now I'm on the outside and I'm getting into it with Coast Guard senior officers and, and flags who are like, that's not our job. And I'm like, oh, oh, so maritime, a cyber effect that disables a port or a ship is not your job? And they're like, yeah, it's cyber. I'm like, cool. Maybe you shouldn't have helicopters either because aviation isn't your job. It's only on the water. You just told me the water is your job. So let's take away helicopters and anything in aviation because that's not your job either. I'm like, do you realize how stupid that sounds? And, and so I, I was able to get it to be a law. And then, so then that got me noticed by the White House. And so then I went to the National Security Council and me and a couple other guys became the co-authors of the National Maritime Cybersecurity Plan which then forced the Coast Guard to do cyber things and establish the cyber protection teams and make them commands and follow on. And then I found some allies in, in, in the Coast Guard too that helped push also. But it made me angry. It made me so angry. And I was like, this is going to be my little personal mission. Um, and so so I drove that change. And that's changed. I'm still like driving today, right? I'm still speaking, pushing forward maritime cyber issues little bit different. I Most of the admirals that had totally resisted doing cybersecurity stuff have now thankfully been put out to pasture and retired, but there's still a few out there. We're make, It's making more strides. I think there's a lot more to go. China is, I ran counter China on the NSC. It, it is as bad as you could possibly think it is. They are all over us, absolutely all over us. And so every military member needs to realize that this isn't a competitor. This is an adversary. Um, but that, so it drove me there. So that was the first part. But the second part was then when I left government again, I, I really had a struggle there because I, I was at the Department of Energy and I, I was a political appointee in the SES role. And because that's those senior roles, they're all political appointees. And to me, I'm like, dude, the, the president is asking me to do something in cybersecurity. Hell yeah, I'm doing it. You know what I mean? We That's military people. What do you do? Commander in chief says, do something, do it. Right. And it ended up, you ended up finding out that at that level, there's so many more politics involved. It's not like in the Coast Guard, people didn't, there's people that didn't like me and didn't like that I pushed cyber, but they didn't stab me in the back. Do you know what I mean? Like they would, I knew that they didn't like what I was doing. And if they were in charge, they could say, I'm not doing that. Right. In the political civilian side in the politics process, they will like literally stab you and do different things to defame you or remove you from your position. And so that was like an identity hit. And so when I came out, I was, I ended up, Somebody ended up making an accusation on my clearance that was totally bullshit. The person that made the accusation wasn't even in the building the day that it occurred. The day that they said that something happened, I'm like, dude, you weren't even here. Yeah. And so I ended up getting it. I had to file an IG. I had to hire a lawyer. And I ended up like, I, I have a full TSCI and all that stuff. But it was like a massive like... Hit. I'm like, dude, I'm trying to do the right thing for the country here. And like our own people are stabbing us. Right. 
And so that started me on like a negative path. And it's like, you, you start down that spiral, you get into your, your job after that, you're not seeing the success that you thought, right? You're like, why can't I get anything moving forward the right way? And so then what do you do? You start gaining weight, you're not eating right, sleeping right. And so, yeah, I went through like that period became the, the fattest I've ever been in my life. <laughs> and, and just like a super irritable, like angry person. We went on family vacation that year. And my, but afterwards, it's like the vacation we don't talk about. Like, well, I was like, that was a terrible vacation. <laughs> yeah. But some of the things that kind of snapped me out of it was sounds strange and ridiculous, but it's accountability. And I, I got this, this Fitbit or whoop, whoop band. Sorry, I don't want to advertise the wrong one. I got a whoop band and the, and I was like, you know what? My brother-in-law has one. I'm just going to see what it tells me. And it's dude, you're sleeping four hours or less a night. You're like in the red all the time. Your resting heart rate is 90 every day. All of your markers are terrible. And you feel terrible because of that. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm getting four or five hours of sleep. It's fine. I've been doing that. Been doing that for forever. I can handle it. And you're like, hey, I'm not 22 anymore. And I'm not also like in, a, in good physical shape. I'm 42. And, like, and, and so then you, I slowly just started setting like markers for myself. Okay. I'm going to get my sleep average above five hours and then above six hours. Right. So now I'm like six hours and five minutes. I'm trying to keep going up. And then I, and it would, so I started getting that. And then I'm like, I'm going to go to the gym a minimum five days a week or three days a week, then five days a week. Then I'm like, Oh, I'm going to add some running and not just lift weights because I'm a meathead. Right. So for me, I would just go and I'll just lift weights every time. Right. <laughs> Grow. Yeah. So, so, so I started thinking like, dude, maybe being 240 pounds at six feet and 40 years old is not the best thing to do for the rest of your life. And so I started moving in that direction and I found other people, right? So one of my buddies and I, we always are like accountable. Hey man, we got this reunion and we're going to see each other in October or whatever. Dude, what are you going to look like? You got to start getting there. And like once a week, Hey, I stayed on my diet. I stayed went to, I, I, I got to the gym six out of seven days or five out of seven days or whatever. And you find a couple different people that will like push you in that direction. And obviously alcohol consumption is a part of that too, right? Like as you feel worse, you're drinking more and you got to start getting in the, go back the other way. And, and like, to me, that's, that's, that, that's how I've walked the dog backwards is like, basically forcing yourself to be accountable to other people. I think that having the accountability, having the small goals, and then having the community to keep you accountable to those small goals are things that people need to be aware of and utilize. And having those additional things outside of your job, whether it be the gym or a hobby that keeps you active outside of work to be able to disconnect yourself 
from what you're doing, I think is incredibly important. I want to hit on you. You, you said something. I want to bring it back to it. You said having things outside of your work. So in the military, it's easy to be like everything you do is essentially work, right? It's your job to be in shape. It's your job to do these things military related. When you get in the private sector, it's not. And so you're like, my job is to be at this computer keyboard and answer all these emails immediately and respond to these people. That's my job. And so you're like, I can't work out today. I got 200 emails I have to answer. You're like, dude, you don't. Like, first off, emails are not emergencies. Right? You don't need to answer every email. And you're like, I was working in this company and I think we're on this like Silicon Valley rocket ship. And you read these like stories of Elon Musk sleeping on the floor. And you're like, all these people, they just code and sleep in their offices and all this. And the first part of that is that actually is more rare than most. Right. And I hate to break it to you, but Silicon Valley is not the smartest people in the world. They are not. Right. And they're not and they're not the best leaders either. In fact, that's like the, their weakest point is leadership. And so you start to realize that that like there's smart people all over the place, not just in Silicon Valley, right? And like the company style of building a company that way is not the only way to do things. And you and it's like, hey, maybe I don't need to sit at my desk all day and answer these emails or build these PowerPoints or whatever. Do a good job and do it in your time period. But remember that taking care of yourself is actually the first step of being a good employee, right? So would you be a good soldier if you were fat and out of shape? No, you wouldn't be. So why do you think you're going to be a good, let's say, like cyber engineer or marketing head or something like that? If you're fat and out of shape because you like can't because you're spending too, all your time doing that instead of taking care of you as a person. And so I, I had that moment too. Actually, once I started to get my sleep under control I, and I started to put up a wall of like, I am going to drop my kids off school and then work out every Monday through Friday. That is what I'm going to Minus a work trip here or there. But that is what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to schedule a meeting before X time. I literally put on my calendar, DNB, do not book during this time period. Like I'll take a meeting if you want to do a meeting at 8.30 at night, fine. I'll take that meeting. But this is my window that I'm going to hit the gym. Yeah. Yeah. And that was incredibly helpful for like feeling back in control and being like, like you're ultimately, it's accountability for yourself, but that was like getting the control back to me. I love it. I think that that's a, uh, Yeah. Feeling like you're in control, I think, is such an important piece of the puzzle because I think that so many people feel out of control once they get out of the military because we lose so much of that structure that the military gave us. And then it's just everything's a free for all. And it's really hard to just, what do I do? What's the, what do I, yeah. So it's, I think that's an excellent thing to point out for sure. Yeah. So one thing that you, brought up that I'm really interested in is earlier on when you were talking about your career, you referenced product design in reference to in reference to when you were working on your like fires, fire capabilities. And something I'm interested in asking you is how can veterans 
learn how to translate their military experience into skills that actually matter to the outside world. Yeah, that's like the old one. I'm getting out of the military. I need to get a PMP. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why? Because I'm good at making the trains run on time, and I think I can do that. Um, So a couple different things. First off, we de facto default to that. Like I remember getting out, and I'm like, I should be a chief of staff. Why? Because I can keep things organized and keep people moving and hold people accountable. And frankly, I don't. I hate that. Actually, I never want to do that job. But I've done it in the military, so I thought that's what I should do. Just like people are like, oh, everyone should get a PMP because we can do those things. First off, there are people that are project managers, and they are exceptionally good at it. Stop. And I... I don't remember if it was your podcast, but somebody said this and they're like, stop thinking that you will be a good PMP because you're in the military. It is not true. You may, you can still suck at it and you can still likely hate it because we were trained to do these things. Doesn't mean we like to do all these things, right? And you're not about it. Leave being a project manager to people that are passionate about being a project manager. And, and so going through that and saying, what do we do? So, I, I really like to build things. I, you think about things of like, how do you like iterate um, problem sets in your mind? How do you design different things? I personally, I'm like, I love my, some of my favorite jobs or experiences that I had were in, in situations where we had like giant whiteboards. It could have been a Coast Guard Command Center or a TOC. Or when I was out on a staff tour, I had a nine-foot whiteboard. I loved iterating and designing solutions to problem sets on the board. I'm like, how are we going to tackle this? Let's think about this. How do we get through this? Working with the team, figuring it all out. And it, I started to think, well, where can I get that in the private sector? Like, what type of stuff, jobs are building things and figuring out problems and that type of stuff? And for me, I knew it was in tech, right? So. So, so I started thinking about, I wanted to be a part of that. And I remember on the military, somewhat like writing like four paragraph orders, five paragraph orders or whatever, and doing that, like planning and trying to think, okay, if I'm in this situation, I need these five t- tools to be useful. Right? So I'm sending, say I'm sending my small boats out off my cutter to go do a law enforcement. I want to have three or four people. I want to, I need to have a shotgun guy. I need to have a boat driver. I need to have X, Y, and Z. I got a guy on the radio or, or how do we respond to different things? And you have to think ahead of what type of kit does everybody need to do that sort of stuff. That's not actually any different than saying, Hey, I'm a user. I need to, let's just say it was like, let's just say it was like, your 401k software financial planning, your bank or something, right? But you're trying to put it in IT. You're like, I have money. I need, I want to be able to see my accounts, see my money, move my money around. Okay. What does that look like? I want to be able to click it once and drag it over here. And that means move this to here. That's designing a product. Like you're starting to write out what are product requirements and it's like user experience, product requirements, and then you have technical requirements that underpin that on how those things would happen. 
that like when I started learning about what product management was in, in, in product design, in some of my interviews, I, I said, oh, this is starting to sound like stuff that I like doing. Just translating what I was thinking about from planning military events in my interviews with people, like, man, these product managers, this is cool. And so I, I literally did, I did some interviews for them and I was like, hey, when your journey to become a product manager, what books and stuff did you like? And they were like, like one, for instance, was The Design of Everyday Things. They're like, dude, this book is amazing. And so, so I got it. And I'm like, this is a great way to look at problems. And, they, and it's, it talks, there's like case studies of how they, how certain products were developed. I would love, I loved watching, there's a couple of like Silicon Valley tech-ish documentaries of like, how the Macintosh was built and things like that. And I'm like, dude, I love that stuff. I was like, wow. And so that started me into that funnel of product design. It, you have to think of what were your favorite tours in the military? Why were they your favorite? And then like, how did you contribute to success there? And then it's translating that into where could it be similarly done in the private sector? Mm. I think that's great. And I think that asking, I love that you said asking people to either recommend resources that they liked yeah. so that you can either dive further into that specific thing that you might be interested in or also cross-checking your thoughts with folks who are actually there to see if you're on the right track or not, which I think is, I think is awesome. It's, sometimes and, it's also who was your role model? Yeah. Right. Like in product design, a lot of times it, 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 it's people at Apple and uh, different and in finance, I've talked to guys and they're like, dude, I loved the, the, this, this finance icon who like built. So I've talked to guys that were like, I loved reading about another book, but I loved reading about the guy that did, I, I'm blanking on his name right now, but all like the credit default swaps and made money in 2008 when everyone else was losing money, right? Like, oh, oh shoot, what's his name? Um, I know, I can't think of it. Yeah, and and so it's part of it. Hey, maybe what? Who was your like? Who was your visionary guy? And then you take it from there, and you're like, oh, I can read about that guy now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. One other question that I have for you is: as someone who's moved into a lot of new areas and has done a lot of really fascinating things, whether it's moving from regular coasty stuff to IT and then cyber warfare in the Coast Guard, or you're writing legislature for maritime uh, cyber warfare, all these different things. How would you recommend to people to tackle the imposter syndrome problem that I'm sure you've had to deal with as you've blazed trails in a variety of different areas in your life? I think it's always there, but I think for me, it, you start with like the small wins. So, so like when I was like, Hey man, I want to move the Coast Guard forward. And I was talking with some lobbyists and stuff and they were like, why don't we just write some legislation? And I, to me, I'm like, that's fancy paper and all those, it's fancy writing. I, I don't know how to do that. They were like, what do we want it to do? And break it down. 
And ultimately, like the legislation ended up being like 10 lines. But like we were able to narrow it down and say these 10 lines are we want explicit things done in these 10 lines. Right. And so it only ended up being like 10 lines, but it was like that small win. Right. Like I got those 10 lines. And so then I'm like, if I could write 10 lines, it become a law. Could I write 10 action items that I think we need to do as a nation to move forward in maritime cybersecurity? Yeah, I could write that. And then you like circulate those 10 action items with people you trust, whatever, like, hey, Billy, these are my 10 items. What would you add to this list? And I go, oh, I would add this, or I think this would connect to you or to this. And, you know, so the document grows a little bit. And then that doc, and then you're like, what if we take these 10 items and turn this into a strategy or an implementation plan, something we can do and you just kind of slowly build on it. And people think that billionaires were invented in a day. They think talent was found by a talent scout at the mall. Like where somebody was just walking by and like, obviously that's the next supermodel in the world. Or like people think this one still cracks me up. People will say things like, oh, that best football, Tom Brady was discovered. He was this, he was discovered. He, what he didn't, he what didn't scout or anything. It's like, no, like Tom Brady and other D one prospects in college, they had people putting out videos on them and circulating them and they would send out mailers and they would call scouts to come look at them. But it was like all those little small nuggets put together finally turned into this big achievement. We really have to remember that, that Rome wasn't built in a day, right? It's like, you have to keep pushing at these small wins. The big things will happen. They don't happen overnight. And, and I think that we largely think because of the, the, the few Mark Zuckerbergs of the world that like that success happens overnight and we're too, we're out of the military and we're 35 or 40 or whatever. And we're like, I'm so far behind. I can't catch up. And do you know what the average age of successful startups is? Like the age it's of the founder? Like, yeah. It's in their late 40s, I think. Yeah, for, it's mid 40s. Yeah. yeah, it's not 23. It's not 27. It's not 30. Like we have this thought process that it's all of these people that we're behind the curve on. And that's not, that's just not true. And it's that daily move the ball forward every day, advance the football, move it, move the chains. And over time you will win the game. You know, mm -hmm. we, and we, it's tough to, it's tough to think in that. Oh, I think that's uh, I, I love that piece of advice because I think that people in the military, especially like you said earlier in the podcast, like we we just left a place in our life where you were, right at the peak, like you hop mm. off at the top yeah. and then there's some reset. And like, for me, like, even for me, something that I've had to work on is back in the military, because I had six years of experience, I was really good at structuring my day yeah. for a variety of reasons. And I'm only a year and like three quarters into this whole civilian thing. And it's I get frustrated at myself because I'm still working on how do I structure my day 
as a remote worker. Uh, and totally. like, I beat myself up over that a lot because I had it figured out in the last chapter of my life. And then I have to like, take a step back and go, what am I doing? I've only been doing this for a year and a half, essentially. Like, why, why would I have this figured out right now? Like, I'm not even, I'm not even a third of the way to where I was as a military member, not counting my academy time. And so I, I think that, um, we just have a real hard time having grace with ourselves in those. We just want to have these like amazing strategic wins right off the bat yes. when really the game, like you said, is played in inches and people don't like to appreciate the inches. They, they, they need to see 75 yard touchdowns and yeah, we, uh, like we play breakaway like runs. We play like it's yeah. Madden where we're like every play throw the Hail Mary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not not like a Big Ten run game. But. Like even that legislation, mm-hmm. it took a year and a half. Yeah. Like we got it written and then it took a year and a half to move through sessions of Congress and keep have, and I keep having to check in. Hey, hey, don't let that drop. Hey, hey, you got that? Hey, come on through. And oh, somebody else. Can you make sure that got in that stays in the bill? Oh, move to the Senate. Just keep it in there. You know what I mean? Like that was totally a game of inches. But once that once it dropped, then it became something to that that got noticed and became a domino for the next thing, and then we had to do that. We had to do that game of inches again, and that took a year and a half. Also, <laughs> like the wins in careers don't occur in one year segments. I would say it's rare that they occur in a year and a half. I think they occur in two, two, maybe three year segments where you get the, the, the wins. It's rare that they stack up faster than that. Like I'm, you know, I'm thinking of like promotions and, you know, we, we forget that you spend six years as an O3. Like everybody's, like, oh, I was just, I was like master of my job, my craft. I made, I was 01, then I made 02, then I made 03. It's so, yeah, but if, if you stayed in, in my case, or if you were going to stay in, you would have waited six more years for that. <laughs> exactly. No, it's just funny. It's funny to talk about because it's like obvious, but going back to some of the stuff that we talked about earlier in the show, like things that are obvious externally, it's almost impossible to spot internally when it's happening to you for whatever reason, which is always just a ridiculous, I don't know. It's always like a crazy thing to think about. And having the self-awareness to be able to spot those things within yourself, I think is honestly one of the most it's a useful skills someone could have getting out of the military and in life, but it's a hard one to build. Yeah. And it does. And I didn't have, I'm, <laughs> I got it in 2016. That was when I left active duty. And I would say some of those biggest like awareness moments only occurred six months ago for me. <laughs> like because I hit I hit some early wins. I did have the, the imposter and the crisis in the middle, but then I hit some wins. And then technically I went back into government, even in the civilian capacity, but I'm back in government. So I'm back in an area I'm familiar with. It resets me. And then I get out again and now I'm like having them again. So six years, seven years later, I'm like having these hits that are like, uh, or these struggles, I should say, that I'm like, dude, how do I get a control of this? And now I'm like figuring it out. But on the outside, people are like, dude, you went. 
And I'm like, ah, kind of. <laughs> kind of, but not really. <laughs> like, I might have there, but not, not always right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the danger of playing the comparison game when you're looking at someone's experiences on LinkedIn or anything like that. Just saying, oh, yeah, everyone else around me is clearly crushing it. So why am I not crushing it? It's, there's a lot of things that exist in that space that people aren't necessarily aware of. And so don't just think because you're having a bad time that you're the only person that's having that bad time for sure. So so last question before we cut off, what is the final piece of advice that you want to leave the listeners with? Um, the final, yeah, the final piece of advice it is is like a couple part thing. Um, Send it. Yeah. So the fir- the first one is you know thinking about military people who go a lot of in, in a lot of cases our entire military career is built on pieces of paper. It's built on this is my fit rep or my, what is it? The E set or whatever in the army, the one piece paper that has like the whole career on it. My OER, my officer evaluation, whatever career summary. And we're like, obviously somebody will see this and know that I'm amazing. Know that I'm a beast. Yeah. And and that's the military process, right? Because they try to say that it's impartial and, even though it's, we all know it's actually really not, but we act like it's impartial and it's all based on these pieces of paper of achievements that we have and ribbon racks. And that's just not how real life functions. And like the people get hung up on their transition and they're like, taps told me I need to do a resume. I'm going to spend four grand on this resume writer and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, dude, don't do that. Like, Please don't do that. That's, you're wasting money. Your persona as a member of the private sector is not built on the piece of paper at all. That piece of paper is just like a document that's like a chronological history of where you've been. It's It doesn't get you hired. It doesn't get you fired. It doesn't necessarily really open doors for you. It's just a chronological history of where you worked. Get away from the mentality that is the key to the kingdom. The key to the kingdom is this. The key to the kingdom is how you represent yourself externally, the network that you build, the sum of the the people that surround you and the identity that you have. That is what defines you in, in life and in the private sector. Work on that. Stop focusing on working on this. And you and I think you'll find the the success that you're looking for. So that's I love it. I love it. That's an amazing that's an amazing piece of advice. Do you have anything else that you that you wanted to add? No? I love it. Go bears, don't, go, boats, don't. go boats. <laughs> that's a great one. Hey, uh, we gotta end on that. Gotta shout out shout out the Coasty first first Coast Guard member to be on the pod. Really appreciate you coming on, man. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for staying up late. I know you're on East Coast time, so grateful. I'm grateful for that. And just really grateful for you choosing to come on, take time to give 
such amazing advice and tell your story to people that it's really going to help. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sean. I uh, really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love it. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> thank you so much. Glad to finally get you on air. Yeah, appreciate but, it. Yeah, man. It's been, absolute, it's been an absolute pleasure. And for everyone else who's listening, thank you so much for taking the time to make it to the end of the episode. Uh, you're the people that we do this for. We love that you're on this journey with us. If you love the content, liking, sharing, subscribing on whatever platform you're on is greatly appreciated. It definitely helps us out. But yeah, you guys are why we do this. And we love having you on this journey. Thanks again, Sean, so much for coming on. And for everyone else out there, we will catch you on the next episode of the Post-Military Podcast. Peace. <laughs>